Welcome to Macropiece Theater. I'm your narrator, Emil Kalinowski, and you're about to hear the most interesting essay of the year. It wasn't published this year, but it will be the most interesting essay you hear this year. It was by Nicholas Humphrey, published on March 27, 2011, in the Public Domain Review, and the title says it all, Bugs and Beasts Before the Law. It's an incredible story about the Middle Ages, but it's not about the Middle Ages. It's about humans. And we may think, oh, we're so much more scientific and sophisticated today. We may be more scientific. I don't know if we're more sophisticated. There are good people out there who say that the reason we're in the state we are is because of conspiracy. Others will say no. It's competence, specifically the lack of, of those in charge. There's a third possibility, chaos. This is the best treatment I have come across on that topic. On March 5th, 1986, some villagers near Malacca in Malaysia beat to death a dog, which they believed was one of a gang of thieves who transformed themselves into animals to carry out their crimes. The story was reported on the front page of the London Financial Times. When a dog bites a man, it is said, that's not news. But when a man bites a dog, that is news. Such stories, however, are apparently not news for very long. Indeed, the most extraordinary examples of people taking retribution against animals seem to have been almost totally forgotten. A few years ago, I lighted on a book, first published in 1906, with the surprising title, The Criminal Prosecution and Capital Punishment of Animals, by E.P. Evans, author of Animal Symbolism in Ecclesiastical Architecture, Bugs and Beasts Before the Law, etc., etc. The frontspiece showed an engraving of a pig dressed up in a jacket and breeches being strung up on a gallows in the market square of a town in Normandy in 1386. The pig had been formally tried and convicted of murder by the local court. When I borrowed the book from the Cambridge University Library, I showed this picture of the pig to the librarian. Is it a joke? she asked. No, it was not a joke. All over Europe, throughout the Middle Ages, and right on into the 19th century, animals were, as it turns out, tried for human crimes. Dogs, pigs, cows, rats, and even flies and caterpillars were arraigned in court on charges ranging from murder to obscenity. The trials were conducted with full ceremony. Evidence was heard on both sides. Witnesses were called, and in many cases the accused animal was granted a form of legal aid, a lawyer being appointed at the taxpayer's expense to conduct the animal's defense. In 1494, for example, near Clermont in France, a young pig was arrested for having strangled and defaced a child in its cradle. Several witnesses were examined who testified that on the morning of Easter Day, the infant being left alone in its cradle, the said pig entered during the said time the said house and disfigured and ate the face and neck of the said child, which, in consequence, departed this life. Having weighed up the evidence and found no extenuating circumstances, the judge gave the sentence. We, in detestation and horror of the said crime, and to the end that an example may be made and justice maintained, have said, 
judged, sentenced, pronounced, and appointed that the said porker, now detained and prisoner and confined in the said abbey, shall be, by the master of the high works, hanged and strangled on a gibbet of wood. Evans' book details more than 200 such cases. Sparrows being prosecuted for chattering in church, a pig executed for stealing a communion wafer, a cock burnt at the stake for laying an egg. As I read, my eyes grew wider and wider. Why did no one tell us this at school? Why were we taught so many dreary facts of history at school and not taught these? We all know how King Canute attempted to stay the tide at Lambeth. But who has heard, for example, of the solemn threats made against the tides of locusts, which threatened to engulf the countryside of France and Italy? The Pied Piper, who charmed the rats from Hamelin, is part of legend. But who has heard of Bartholomew Chesney, a French jurist of the 16th century, who made his reputation at the bars the defense counsel for some rats? The rats had been put on trial in the ecclesiastical court on the charge of having feloniously eaten up and wantonly destroyed the local barley. When the culprits did not, in fact, turn up in court on the appointed day, Chesney made use of all his legal cunning to excuse them. They had, he urged in the first place, probably not received the summons since they moved from village to village. But even if they had received it, they were probably too frightened to obey, since, as everyone knew, they were in danger of being set on by their mortal enemies, the cats. On this point, Chesney addressed the court at some length in order to show that if a person be cited to appear at a place which he cannot come in safety, he may legally refuse. The judge, recognizing the justice of this claim, but being unable to persuade the villagers to keep their cats indoors, was obliged to let the matter drop. For an animal found guilty, the penalty was dire. The Normandy pig depicted in the frontispiece of the Evans book, was charged with having torn the face and arms of a baby in its cradle. The pig was sentenced to be mangled and maimed in the head forelegs, and then, dressed up in a jacket and breeches, to be hung from a gallows in the market square. But, as we have seen with Chesney's rats, the outcome of these trials was not inevitable. In doubtful cases, the courts appear in general to have been lenient on the principle of innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. In 1587, a gang of weevils accused of damaging a vineyard were deemed to have been exercising their natural rights to eat and, in compensation, were granted a vineyard of their own. In 1457, a sow was convicted of murder and sentenced to be hanged by the hind feet from a gallows tree. Her six piglets, being stained with blood, were included in the indictment as accomplices. But no evidence was offered against them, and on account of their tender age, they were acquitted. In 1750, a man and a she-ass were taken together in an act of buggery. The prosecution asked for the death sentence for both of them. After due process of law, 
The man was sentenced, but the animal was led off on the ground that she was the victim of violence and had not participated in her master's crime of her own free will. The local priest gave evidence that he had known the said she asked for four years, that she had always shown herself to be a virtuous and well-behaved ass, and that she had never given occasion of scandal to anyone, and that therefore he was willing to bear witness that she is in word and deed and all her habits of life a most honest creature. What was the purpose of these lengthy and extravagant procedures? A desire for revenge cannot have been the only motive. Evans cites cases of inanimate objects being brought before the law. In Greece, a statue that fell on a man was charged with murder and sentenced to be thrown into the sea. In Russia, a bell that pealed too gleefully on the occasion of the assassination of a prince was charged with treason and exiled to Siberia. The protection of society cannot have been the only motive either. Evans tells of the bodies of criminals already dead being brought to trial. Pope Stephen VI, on his ascension in 896, accused his predecessor, Formasus, of sacrilegiously bringing the papal office into disrepute. The body of the dead pope was exhumed, dressed in the pontifical robes, and set upon a throne in St. Peter's, where a deacon was appointed to defend him. When the verdict of guilty was pronounced, the executioner thrust Formasus from the throne, stripped him of his robes, cut off the three benedictory fingers of his right hand, and threw his body as a pestilential thing into the Tiber. Taken together, Evans' cases suggest that again and again the true purpose of the trials was psychological. People were living at times of deep uncertainty. Both the Greeks and medieval Europeans had in common a deep fear of lawlessness, not so much fear of laws being contravened, as the much worse fear that the world they lived in might not be a lawful place at all. A statue fell on a man out of the blue? A pig killed a baby while its mother was at mass? Swarms of locusts appeared from nowhere and devastated the crops. The holy sea was becoming riddled with corruption? At first sight, such misfortunes can have appeared to have no rhyme or reason to them to an extent that we today cannot find easy to conceive. These people of the pre-scientific era lived every day at the edge of explanatory darkness. No wonder if, like Einstein in the 20th century, they were terrified of the real possibility that God was playing dice with the universe. The same anxiety has indeed continued to pervade more modern minds. Dostoevsky's Ivan Karamazov, having declared that everything is permitted, concluded that were his thesis to be generally acknowledged, every living force on which all life depends would dry up at once. Alexander Pope claimed that order is heaven's first law, and Yeats drew a grim picture of a lawless world. 
turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. Yet the natural universe, lawful as it may in fact have always been, was never in all respects self-evidently lawful. And people's need to believe that it was so, their faith in determinism, that everything was not permitted, that the center did hold, had to be continually confirmed by the success of their attempts at explanation. So the law courts, on behalf of society, took matters into their own hands. Just as today, when things are unexplained, we expect the institutions of science to put the facts on trial. One can see the whole purpose of the legal actions as being to establish cognitive control. In other words, the jobs of the courts was to domesticate chaos, to impose order on a world of accidents, and specifically to make sense of certain seemingly inexplicable events by redefining them as crimes. I read some years ago another report in a London newspaper. A jilted woman who attempted suicide by leaping from a 12th floor window but landed on and killed a street salesman has been charged with manslaughter. Prosecutors in Taipei, Taiwan said the 21-year-old Hu Yu Mei was responsible for the death of the food salesman because she failed to make sure that there was no one below when she jumped. Ho had argued that she thought the man would have moved away by the time she hit the ground. She also said she had threatened earlier to sue the salesman because he interfered with her freedom to take her own life. If convicted, Ho could be imprisoned for two years. Who says that the medieval obsession with responsibility has gone away? But it was with dogs as criminals I began and with dogs as criminals I'll end. A story in the Times some years ago told of a dog, a dead dog, who had been thrown by an unknown hand from the roof of a skyscraper in Johannesburg, had landed on a man and flattened him. The said man, having in consequence departed this life, the headline read, Oh, how unnewsworthy. Dog kills man. I wonder what Chesney or E.P. Evans would have made of that. Well, there you go, ladies and gentlemen. Was I right when I told you that this is the most interesting essay that you will hear this year? It's unbelievable. Uh, and the key is here, of course, that good people will say the reason we are in the unsettled state we are, the most volatile, discombobulated, political, socioeconomic, geopolitical situation since the Second World War is because of conspiracy. The people in charge know exactly what they're doing and they've got a master plan and it's very unpleasant. There are others who say, nope, it's competence. They don't know what they're doing. No wonder it's a mess. Then there's this third possibility that's most unsettling of all, that it's not a matter of getting the right people in charge or that the people in charge are evil. It's that we are corks on a river, kites in a hurricane, and we hope to be able to apply some sort of order to this unsettled, complex system of chaos 
It's hard to believe I find it unsettling. Surely that can't be true. Surely we have some domain over our future. Anyways, you can see how this relates to macroeconomics and I'm thinking of central banking especially. The good people who say the Federal Reserve is a conspiracy. Others will say, no, they just don't know what they're doing. Third possibility is... <laughs> chaos. We, in detestation and horror of the said crime, and to the end that an example may be made and justice maintained, have said, judged, sentenced, pronounced, and appointed that the said porker now... <laughs> I can't, ladies and gentlemen, I can't. <laughs> we... detestation and horror of the said crime and to the end that an example may be made and Detestation and horror of said crime, and to the end that an example may be made, and justice maintained, have said, judged, sentenced. <laughs> said pork <laughs> okay <clears throat> oh jesus okay we in detestation or horror of the said crime, and to the end that an example may be made and justice maintained, have said, judged, sentenced, pronounced, and appointed that the said porker, now detained as a prisoner... <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> the word porker, I can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> 